0: You don't know flag. do Welcome to You Don't Know Flag, the podcast full of stories about retro gaming, retro computing, video games, arcade games, and technology from a guy who was there and still is. My name is Rob O'Hara, but for the next 30 minutes, you can call me Flack. Episode 170, Arcade Guts. Greetings and salutations, listeners, and welcome to another episode of You Don't Know Flack. Today is February 9th, 2016, and I am your host, Rob Flack O'Hara. On today's episode of You Don't Know Flack, we will be talking about Arcade Guts, I've been uh, working on a couple of computer projects over the week, and uh, one of those projects is connecting my current computer with my Commodore 64 uh, via a null modem cable. So as I transfer this week's show notes over to my main machine via this null modem cable, we have a few minutes to chat on what we like to call loading time. Loading time. Loading time. Loading time. Well, welcome back everybody. Um, I'll be honest with you. This week's episode is kind of short. Uh, the topic is kind of short, but to make up for that, I have a bunch of things to talk about on loading time. So it's possible that loading time might end up being half the show <laughs> and arcade parts, arcade guts might be the other half of the show. So I have uh, several things to talk about during loading time. The first is that I have moved the last of my websites up to HostGator. Uh, I moved to and Well, actually, I moved robohair.com and all of the subdomains attached to robohair.com, including uh, the You Don't Know Flack site, podcast.robohair.com, and my forum and a few other sites up to HostGator. And there's a reason that I'm doing this. I'm doing this for two reasons, actually. One is I'm tired of being my own web host. There was a time when hosting your own websites made sense. I loved doing it. I enjoyed doing it. And I still do. There's part of me that still loves doing that. I've been a server admin, a network admin, network administrator for oh my gosh, Um, really since the year 2000 was when I started at work, became an official network engineer, moved out of the client support arena into the server and network services support arena. So I've been doing that stuff for a long time and it just made sense. I wanted to control things about my web host, which I couldn't do. Uh, Plus, you know, back then, if you paid for a web hosting services, you had to you know pay for a certain amount of web space. You had to pay for so much bandwidth and it just, it was so expensive that it didn't make sense. So what I did in 2000, when cable modems became available, actually, I believe it was in 2003 for a couple of years, I had a residential cable modem service and I upgraded in 2003 to a business account. A business account was faster. It cost more, but the real payoff was you could do your own hosting port 80. You got a static IP and port 80 was open. So you could register domains, point them to your home IP address, set up a web server and become your own web hosted. So that's what I have been doing since 2003. (laughs) It seems amazing. That is a long time to be running your own web server and it just got old and and hosting up in someone else's uh, hosting space is so cheap now. Uh, Hostgator has an account for I think it's $10 a month is what I'm paying and I can put unlimited domains there with unlimited bandwidth and unlimited space. I'm not really uh, uh you know advertising for Hostgator actually. Uh, Throwback Network, the entire network, Throwback Network and Throwback Reviews are also hosted on HostGator. And if you're interested in HostGator, I will turn this into a commercial. You can go to throwbacknetwork.net. I believe it's on the Throwback Network page. It may also be on throwbackreviews.com, but it's definitely on throwbacknetwork.net. There's a affiliate link for HostGator. If you want to check out their prices, I think you can host a single domain for uh, six or seven bucks a month, something like that. It's really cheap and you can host all your domains there for 10 bucks a month. But, uh, so that's what I did. I rented a A uh, one of those accounts migrated all my WordPress sites up there, all my other hosting, all my podcast stuff. So when you download podcasts, uh, and I've been doing that for uh, a while for the podcasts, so I don't have to worry about bandwidth anymore. I don't have to worry about, uh, you know, when people would download, when I would put a new show out, it would kill my home server for several hours as everybody's uh, uh, pod catchers would download the new episode and it would kill my server. So, I did that. I made that change a long time ago, but uh, well, I say a long time, three, four or five months ago, something like that. But the other thing that this does is it gets me out of my commercial Cox cable account. My commercial account, my business account has me locked in at 18 megabits down and three up, which at the time was super fast at the time for residential. They were offering about five down. So 18 down was really fast, but now I think the default speeds are 25, and for only a few dollars more, you can get 50 down. Uh, so I'm, you know, I locked into a good thing at the time, but it hasn't aged well. And Google Fiber is coming to Oklahoma City. And because of that, Cox Cable is now advertising something they call GigaBlast, which is their competing uh, gigabit speed. So we have two gigabit services on the way. And gigabit sounds a whole lot better to me than 18 megabit. So that's the plan for an extra 10 bucks a month. I've moved that up and my uh, I'll be able to get rid of my business account. There's a am talking way too much about this, but because I have a business account, they actually sublease that out. So I'm not able to get those package deals that you get when you get your cable TV and your phone and your internet all from the same place. I don't qualify for any of those, so I'm paying... Uh, over 200 a month for (laughs) internet and the basic HD television services and enough's enough. So that's the goal, but everything now has been moved up. One thing, a hard lesson I learned, or I should say was reminded of is that Linux is case sensitive and windows is not. So I became very lax over the past five or 10 years with the links on my website, uh, Sometimes file names would have uppercase. Sometimes they would have uppercase extension. Sometimes they would all be lowercase. And when I migrated everything up to HostGator, I was amazed at how many broken links I suddenly found. Pictures that weren't working and links, internal links on the site. And it was all due to my own uh, slipshod practices of not making everything uniform and lowercase. So I've been going through, but if you do find something on any of my websites, a broken link or pictures that aren't working, please drop me an email at Rob O'Hara at Rob O'Hara.com. And I will take care of it as soon as possible. Next topic up on loading time. I thought I would mention this. I don't plug my books very much. And I just had two customers in the past couple of weeks, both request, uh, EPUB versions of my books. Now I haven't previously offered my books in EPUB format, I put them in PDF format because I had some misgivings that that would be more secure. It's obviously not any more secure that people wouldn't copy and paste it or do things like that. Uh, but they do. And for some reason, when I generated the PDF files, they're gigantic. They're like 35 or 40 meg. And so I recently converted those back. Uh, I I reconverted the original files to PDF and now they're, less than two megs in size, which is much more manageable. And I was able to create EPUB versions of those. So if you purchase the electronic copies of my books in the future, you will get both the PDF and the EPUB formats. And that's for Commodore or invading spaces. If you have already purchased the PDF version and you would like the EPUB version, or if you would like the smaller PDF version, uh, drop me an email and I will shoot you the, Uh, smaller versions are much more manageable uh, for moving around on tablets and and iPads and things like that. So I think it's a lot more convenient. I don't know that I have a record of everybody that has bought my book at this point. So it'll be the honor system. (laughs) So I I will trust you uh, to pay for my book about all the things that I pirated when I was a kid. Someone mentioned to me over the past couple of weeks, I think it was last week. Uh, that it was Squirrel Appreciation Day. First of all, I don't know who's coming up with all these dumb such-and-such days. You know, uh, I I was okay with the original holidays. You know, if you tell me it's Halloween, (laughs) I buy that, you know. And then we have all these secondary holidays, you know, like it's Boss's Day or Secretary's Day and this and that. And, And I'm okay with some of those. But now every day is something. I mean, if you're on... Facebook, people will post every single day is something day. Uh, and and it seems to reason, I'm just thinking through this here, that there have to be more than 365 things that there are days for. I mean, there's talk like a pirate day and talk like Yoda day. And uh, I mean, th- that can't possibly have made the top 365 things that we have days for. So surely... There are multiple things per days now that I think about it, especially when you hear that it is Squirrel Appreciation Day. And that's what someone posted last week. And it made me laugh. And I'll tell you why it made me laugh. is because at our old house, we had squirrel problems. We had squirrels getting into our attic and chewing up things. They chewed up electrical wires. They would scamper around the ceiling. You would lay there at night uh, occasionally and hear them come and go. They seem to be, they're more active like in the, the morning and, and at dusk when they're come and go. Uh, but the real kicker was the squirrel that fell down in between our shower and our closet wall. And we didn't know this had happened. Uh, we discovered this when we went in the closet one day and the sheetrock was soaked and starting to mold. So we called someone out. They looked at it and they said, yeah, you've got a shower leak. And when they pulled out the sheetrock and looked, uh, a squirrel had fallen down in between the shower and the closet and tried to eat his way out by eating through the shower pan. Now, there's no way to replace a shower pan in a custom shower that is completely covered in tile, which ours was. So we had to call somebody to come out and bust out all the tile in our shower. Then they replaced the shower pan. Then they had to retile the shower and someone had to replace all the sheet rock. This single squirrel cost me roughly several thousand dollars. I don't want to say it was 10,000, but it was several thousand dollars uh, to have all this work done. Uh, additionally, I had to get rid of the squirrels and we purchased squirrel traps. We would put the squirrels up in the, uh, or the, the traps up in the attic and put food in them. Then you have to go up in the attic and check them every now and then. I am a a catch and release type of guy at heart. I don't want to kill squirrels. I don't want to kill mice. I don't want to kill all these types of animals. But someone told me that if you catch a squirrel and don't take it at least 10 miles away from your house, that they will return to your house. And this was at a time when gas was around $3 a gallon and my truck gets about 17 miles per the gallon. And so I'm just doing the math and I'm thinking, you know, unless the squirrel is pitching in for gas money, <laughs> I'm not going to drive every squirrel 10 miles away. Uh, and we called the city to ask if they would come pick up squirrels. And the uh, city told us they recommended filling a trash can full of water and then dumping the squirrel traps in the trash can and pulling the traps out a few minutes later. And that would take care of your squirrels. So that's what I think about Squirrel Appreciation Day. I think squirrels in general, I'm not going to single out one, but they all want to pitch in together, Uh, owe me about $10,000. So that could be a dollar each from 10,000 squirrels. I don't know if you guys are out there listening, if there are any squirrels that subscribe to... uh, you don't know flat, but if you do, you guys owe me some money. And so there was no squirrel appreciation day here at the O'Hara household. I had a weird, this has been a weird couple of weeks for me for technical issues. And I want to start off by telling you the most ridiculous uh, tech story. I turned on my uh, work laptop one morning, I booted up and I went to log in and noticed that my computer screen was in black and white. My desktop was black and white. I didn't even know this is a Windows setting. We're running uh, Windows 7 on our work computer. So, in fact, if somebody could find... Now, I I looked in, like, uh, video card settings, like under my NVIDIA settings, where you can turn the, you know, the color contrast all the way down, but none of that stuff was, was altered or changed. My computer literally out of the blue, booted up in black and white mode, in a grayscale mode. I even took a a screenshot of this because, uh, with my phone, I took a picture with my phone because I'll tell you why, because I do a lot of tech support for other people on the side, not officially, like I don't get paid for it, but people call me, Hey, my computer's doing this. My computer's doing that. And when you've been around long enough, you know what computers do and don't do. Um, For example, my dad called me a while back and said that his cable modem had gone out. Uh, And so, you know, I I walked him through some some different troubleshooting things, Uh, you know, resetting it, doing that, and none of that worked. So he was going to call the cable company to bring him out a new cable modem the next day. He called me the next day. And his computer was trying to upgrade to Windows 10 and said that it had downloaded the the, uh, Windows 10 upgrade. And so his question for me was, how can my computer have downloaded Windows 10 when my cable modem is not working? (laughs) And so uh, as a computer person, you know, immediately you think, Okay, well, that that's impossible, you know, but then when you you start figuring out how these things work and if you know the Windows 10 download is a really large download and it takes place in the background until it's all done and it's queued up and then it would prompt you if you had Windows 7 or Windows 8 and say, hey, it's time to upgrade uh, to Windows 10. So obviously that was what had happened. It had downloaded uh, you know, before his modem had, had gone on the fritz. And then the next day, the next morning, it prompted him to upgrade, but to, you know, a normal user, when you see that it doesn't make sense, you know? And so a lot of times people will call me with things that don't make sense, but they're just, uh, explaining it the best they can from their point of view. You know, when, when end users will call me at work and say, You know, my password doesn't work anymore. It's obviously changed itself. Well, passwords don't change themselves, you know, but you may find out, oh, well, they changed, uh, you know, they, they did a restore on their computer and they went back to an older password. I mean, there's, there's technical reasons for it, but every now and then there's something that just stumps me, you know? And so when I saw this, my computer in black and white mode, I thought to myself, nobody's going to believe this. (laughs) Like if somebody called me and said, Hey, my computer just booted up and it's black and white. I would say, ah, you know, turn your monitor off and on, check your uh, video connections. Of course, this was a laptop. So there was no external video connections. Uh, and I assumed it was a hardware issue. Uh, I really thought that something had gone out. So I uh, rebooted the computer and it came back up again in grayscale and then I got prompted and immediately said, windows is performing a rollback recovery or something like that. And then when it was done with that, it rebooted. And when it came back up, everything was in color again. You got me. <laughs> I literally have no explanation as to why that happened or what even happened, you know? So I, I did, uh, take a picture with my phone just so someday I could tell somebody, you know, this really happened to me. Like I, <laughs> I have evidence. I'm not crazy, uh, but, um, it's just that, that's what kicked everything off. And then, uh, I started off that. What's the next project? Oh, you know, I decided I wanted to build a DOS machine and I'll probably talk more. Like I may do an entire episode about this in the future, but, uh, I, I have this old 486 computer. It's out in the garage. I'm not using it for anything. I've been wanting to put a DOS machine together for doing some DOS gaming. I know that there's DOS box and, and, uh there's emulation alternatives for a lot of this stuff, but I've got some desk space free and, and I had this machine and I wanted to set it up. So I bring this DOS machine up and everything has just been going wrong. I turn it on. The, the machine won't boot. This is an old machine that used to boot. Uh, I pulled all the cards out, cleaned everything out, put it all back in. It boots up. Uh, then the the sound card doesn't work. I tried another sound card Um, you know, it, it works in windows, but it's uh, too new. It's a PCI newer card. There's no DOS drivers. Um, I just forgot how frustrating, you know, setting up, trying to free up conventional memory (laughs) in your configs and auto exec bat files. Uh, it's just a lot of work, you know, and, and, um, in the process of doing all that, I decided that if I were going to hook up a. DOS machine. I wanted to hook it up to a CRT monitor. It just doesn't look right to me on an LCD monitor. And so, uh, I put a call out on Facebook. I said, Hey, if there's any local people that have CRT monitors, I would like one. And, uh, I had one donated to me and I brought it home and it doesn't work. Uh, and so, I mean, it was from a, a friend of mine and it was sitting around his business. I'm sure they, they didn't test it. And, uh, it didn't work. So, uh, but, uh, well, actually one of my uh, podcast listeners, Scott Sackett, who does a podcast of his own, uh, he's a, a Oklahoma city resident. He's a, an artist and a cool all around guy hit me up and said, he also had a monitor just sitting up in his closet. So I, uh, Stopped by his house. It turns out he lives about five or ten minutes away from me. It's funny uh, that you see people online do all these things and, and they happen to live right by you. And so I stopped by Scott's house and he gave me another CRT monitor. I hooked it up and it worked great. And I thought, you know what would be even cooler It would be to hook my MIST computer. Uh, if you remember the MIST episode, MIST is the FPGA computer that runs off of SD cards and you can flash it to be Lots and lots of different retro computers. Uh, there's an Amiga core. There's an Atari ST core. There's uh Apple cores, Baltimore stuff. <laughs> it's, it's old, uh, Donald Duck joke, Apple core, <laughs> Baltimore. Who's your friend? Me. <laughs> anyway, uh, you know, so I thought, wouldn't this be cool running through a CRT? And so I unplugged the mist from my desk moved it over to the other desk and went to plug it in. And when I plugged it in, I felt the power adapter come off of the board inside the mist. Now I remember my friend pair on Twitter. There's some other people that have had this same problem happen. And the guy that makes the mist is really good about supporting the mist. The problem is, is that it takes a couple of months to mail it <laughs> overseas and get it repaired, and you have to pay overseas shipping and wait, and and uh, it's a real pain, you know. But I mean, I think I paid three hundred something dollars for the mist, so I didn't just want it broken. But uh, uh, Paradroid and uh, a couple guys on Twitter pointed me to a mod that's out there for the mist where you can actually install a separate power adapter if you can't fix the micro is a micro USB connector, which is. A lot of, I mean, it's surface mounted. It's very, very delicate. Uh, and there's nothing holding it in place to hold that pressure when you plug this thing in. I bet I haven't plugged anything into my mist 10 times, you know. So um, I it seems to have broke. Like I wasn't, you know, slamming the, the power thing in there. It just came off. But anyway, the soldering that was required was beyond my skill set. So I, I put another... Uh, SOS out there and a, a local friend of mine, Delph. Um, Delph is uh, a guy that I've known for a long time in the classic uh, console collecting circles. He has uh, just an amazing I got a tour of his house while I was over there. He has an amazing Atari collection. I'm just you know, shelves and shelves of of boxed uh, Atari games and he's, he's showing me these collections. You know, here's every uh, you know, like a, here's a complete Activision collection. Here's a complete, you know, Apollo collection. Here's a, I mean, just, and, and everything's in box and it's just beautiful. Just, just really well displayed. He's very uh, neat and meticulous about his collection. And he's also uh, one heck of a electronics repair guy. So I took my mist over to Delph's house and Delph was able to, solder a new power connector onto my mist board, which is great, but the mist case doesn't have a hole for that, uh, which I told Delph that I could drill a hole in it. And I came home and found out that all my drill bits are for wood and not metal. So after breaking a couple of drill bits, I called my buddy Andy, <laughs> who's a, uh, uh, I've known Andy since we were like four years old and he's now a captain. Uh, or a lieutenant, maybe, I don't know. Uh, but he's way up there at the local fire department. So I took the mist to go see him. I paid Andy in Girl Scout cookies and Andy drilled a hole for me and and used a grinder to, you know, take off all the, the rough edges and stuff. And so finally I got, you know, my mist repaired. I got the hole put in, I got a working CRT. It's just been two weeks of doing this stuff. And I, you know, I like electronics projects. Um, but I like them like when I have free time, not when something's broke and I'm frustrated because it's broke. I like, you know, messing around with stuff. Uh, I don't know. I I think sometimes I feel like I'm getting too old for, uh, I, I I don't, I, I like the messing around part. I don't like the frustration part as much as I used to, you know? So anyway, long story short, the mist is up and running. The DOS machine is up and running except for sound. And I ordered a, uh, believe it or not on Amazon, you can order. I ordered a brand new inbox sound blaster, 16 <laughs> sound card, an ISA card. Uh, and it should be here. Thanks to Amazon prime in two days. So on the next episode, we will, I'll give you an update on how that thing is going. Finally, a quick update on school. I'm taking two classes this semester. Uh, one is novel writing and the other one is a, mass communications class and they are both taking up copious amounts of my free time. I recently changed positions at work and that is uh filling my days. My previous position I had a lot of free time during the day. Uh, this position I do not. So I'm definitely working 8 hours a day now and uh, doing school and things at night. So you know I I always I talk about starting different podcasts. I have different interests that pop up and, uh, you know, I always think, oh, I'd like to start this show or I'd like to do that, but man, I just don't have the time right now. I I wish I had the time and I have projects. I have a a list of things on my whiteboard that I'd love to do someday, but, uh, today's not the day. (laughs) This semester is not the time I'm going to do good to get through these classes. And, uh, you know, if I can keep up doing a, you don't know flack and a sprite castle every other week. Then, uh, then I think we'll all, everybody will be happy. Um, oh, you know what I didn't mention, uh, with, uh, my pot or with my websites, com and com, which is the, you don't know flack site. I started a new one, which is write W R I T E. com, And that is where I'm tracking the progress of my novel for novel writing class. I'm, occasionally, you know, I I don't want to, it's not going to be writing advice for me. It's more like things I've learned in class and how I'm applying things and and stuff I'm doing on my book and giving little updates and stuff. So if you want to follow along with the novel I'm working on, go check out com. It's just a, a WordPress site. There is a place to sign up for subscriptions. If you sign up, uh, then you get added to the mailing list. So each time I post a new blog post there, you get notified through email. And if you are, when I'm done with the novel, if you're on still on that mailing list, I will mail you out a copy of the final product. So if you, uh, hang out and, uh, make it to the end, then, uh, that'll be your reward. So. Gosh, that's everything I have, Uh, I think. Oh, I got an email from uh, uh, Maury Estabrooks. Maury's been a longtime listener to the show. Um, He said that he picked up on the You Don't Know Flack podcast uh, and on the blog that I'm a note taker. I mentioned that on the cruise I wrote down some notes. Uh, On my road trips I always take notes. Uh, And so anyway, he asked me how I take notes. And he talked about some of the ways that he has, he has, um, you know, digital, uh, note taking, but he also does analog. And, and, uh, so anyway, I, I wanted to just throw this out whenever I take notes, like on a cruise or a road trip or whatever, it's always in a spiral notebook. Uh, I really love. Not only Spiral Notebooks, but brand new Spiral Notebooks. And so I go to, I probably have a stack of 30 Spiral Notebooks in my office right now. Not new. Uh, most of them are used, and I, uh, I get them from either the Dollar Tree or Big Lots or, uh, you know, back-to-school sales when they're like 49 cents. I'll pick up a couple, and I always get them in different colors. i hate, I, I don't like black covers on them because normally what I do is I'll take a Sharpie and I'll write, you know, on the front, like what's in that spiral notebook. And I have a lot of them that only the first few pages are used. You know, a lot of times, like when I go on a road trip, uh, you know, I buy a new one and I will keep track of mileage and, and, you know, places we went and things like that. And then when I'm done, I'll bring it home. I don't, I don't have any attachment to them per se. Like I don't save them. Uh, and eventually what I'll do is if I have another project, I'll just rip out those pages. Uh, sometimes I'll scan them in most of the time I won't, uh, and, you know, I use them more as data for blog posts and, and things like that. But when I, uh, start a new project, I'll rip out whatever pages were in the front and toss those. Now I do have some really old spiral notebooks and, and the, the best example of that is I have all the spiral notebooks from when I was a kid calling BBSs. So I have, uh, like two or three spiral notebooks that are filled with Phone numbers and passwords and people's names and little notes, you know, get such and such game from Joey and call this guy and this password is this, that sort of thing like that. And those, um, I think I have scanned in most of the pages of those just, uh, to archive it and because they're cool, you know, but, uh, for the most part, I'm not, I don't really have a attachment to them. They're just a, a means for me to, to take notes. And I do have, uh, several apps on my phone. I do use Voxer. Uh, I use it more to talk with people, but it does have a note taking feature. So I've done that. Um, you know, if I'm on the road and I come up with an idea for a, uh, a short story or a, a podcast or anything like that, I'll leave myself a note and, or I'll just use the default audio recorder on the phone, but more, you know, for something that's dedicated like that. Normally it's, uh, uh in a spiral notebook. So anyway, I, I appreciate the question, Maury. um, and uh, I think that is everything I have. So <clears throat> if you have feedback about this episode or any other episode of the show in general, you can email your feedback to me at Rob O'Hara at RobO'Hara.com. Drop me a message on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash you don't know flack. Follow me on Twitter at Commodork or leave me a voice message on my podcast hotline at 405 486 YDKF. And with that long introduction, let's get started talking about this week's topic, which is Arcade Guts. So for those of you who haven't listened to the show from the beginning, and I have actually gone back before recording this episode, I went back and listened to... The early episodes, I think the third episode I did was about arcades, and the quality of those early episodes are terrible. I've gone through three or four different mic setups and, and uh, software configurations, and I definitely feel like what I'm doing now is probably the best audio quality that I've done in the history of this show. That's not to say it's great. It's just better than the old ones. <laughs> and, uh, so some of those old ones are really hard to listen to. So if you haven't listened to all the old ones, I don't uh, particularly blame you if you weren't, uh, along for the ride. My history of arcade games in general, I guess I would just say very quickly that I grew up playing arcade games. I, uh was born in 73, so I was at the exact time and age that perfectly hit the uh, boom of arcade games uh, in the early 80s to mid-80s when arcades exploded. And there were literally arcade games everywhere I went. There were games in the convenience store near my house. There were games in the grocery store that my mom shopped at. There were games at the laundromat. Uh, there were games at the bowling alley and the skating rink. Plus there were standalone, you know, dedicated arcades all over town as well. You know, I grew up in Yukon, Oklahoma at the time. It had a population of around 20,000 people and we had four arcades just in Yukon. Plus all the arcades that were just outside of Yukon in Oklahoma city. So I grew up at a great time. If you loved home computers and home video games, uh, and arcade games, I bought my first arcade game in 1994. I was uh, 21 years old, ran across a newspaper article for a guy selling elevator action. I have listened to the original no quarter podcast where Carrington and Mike reviewed Elevator Action. I don't think they were fans, if I recall. I listened to the Pie Factory podcast where they talked about Elevator Action. They were not fans of the game. Elevator Action is probably one of my top ten favorite games. (laughs) Uh, I don't think a lot of people share my passion for Elevator Action. When I hear people that uh, can't get past the first level or die on the second level, it always makes me chuckle. Uh, because I can usually get to at least the, eh, I would say a third level, every game, Uh fourth level on good games and fifth level occasionally on really good games. Uh, but I, it's hard to determine whether I liked elevator action. And so I bought the machine or I bought the machine and that's what made me like elevator action. But regardless of which way it happened, I've, I've always enjoyed the game and I enjoyed owning it and I played it an awful lot. Uh, over the next few years, I bought uh, three or four more machines. I caught the arcade collecting bug. I moved out of state and had to get rid of that collection. But when I moved back to Oklahoma, we ended up in a house that had a big shed uh, in the backyard, like a uh, outdoor building and, uh, when I say shed, it makes it sound like it was a, you know, a metal building with a dirt floor. This was a, a big wooden, uh, you know, enclosure building with air conditioner and and heater and, and wood floor and wood walls. And, um, by the time I was done, it had carpet and it also had 30 arcade games in it. So I, uh, I'd bought a couple of arcade games before we turned it into an arcade and like I said I, I over the years I think I've owned around 75 different machines. I've bought and sold lots of machines and and um uh I I really hated the hobby. <laughs> Not really. Um there were parts about the hobby that I really enjoyed. My favorite parts were playing the games and being the guy that owned all those machines. My least favorite parts of the hobby were moving machines around and repairing machines. I've said it many times before. I've never been involved in a hobby where more things broke just by sitting around. I had machines break all the time. Part of that is reflected by the uh, price point that I was buying games. I bought a lot of games for a hundred dollars and $200 only to have them break, you know, within months or weeks or whatever. Uh, I was constantly battling bad monitors. There was a time where I would say of my 30 machines, probably 10 were out of order and it just became overwhelming. It was more of a job than it was, uh, a pastime or a hobby. You know, it was something where every day I would go out, into my arcade and just be completely overwhelmed with, uh, you know, what was broken and, and what needed fixing and what I needed to buy and what I needed to replace. Uh, and I wasn't in love with all the games I owned. I owned a lot of games that weren't, uh, well, that were cheap, but weren't necessarily my favorite games. You know, I bought Bucky O'Hare, which is a, uh, oh, a, a side scrolling 'em up type game. It's based on the comic book character. Bucky O'Hare is also a cartoon, uh, but I literally bought it because my last name is O'Hara and I saw Bucky O'Hare and I thought, Oh, that's funny. I'll just buy that. And uh, I think I paid a hundred, hundred and fifty $150 for it. And, uh, it was a, a three player version. So three people could play at a time, but it, I, I bought a lot of games like that just because they were cheaper because, you know, I ran across a good deal, not because I loved them. Uh, I had, some games I bought because I bought them in a lot purchase. There was a, uh, one time I, I found a guy who was selling karate champ and it was really five games for $500. He was moving and he was trying to get rid of these games. And so I bought all five and I remember like one was RoboCop and I'd never played RoboCop before in my life. And then after I played it, I wish I'd never played it <laughs> even that time. And I wished I didn't own it and I owned it the whole time. So you know, there were just a lot of games that I had that I wasn't really in love with. If I had to do it all over again, I would do things differently, but uh, it is what it is. I owned uh, a lot of arcade games and I had fun. Uh, you you tend to forget the bad and you remember the fun. So that's what I try to do when I think about that hobby. Uh, but anyway, when I when I bought my first machine, which was that elevator action machine, I had no idea... What was inside that machine? I didn't know what made arcade games work. I didn't know if they had a hard drive inside. I mean, it doesn't make sense that there wouldn't be, you know, because they're so old, but maybe they had a hard drive. Maybe they had whatever I didn't know. And I certainly didn't know, uh, you know, how to repair them or the parts, you know, the arcade games are very modular. They're designed so that you can swap parts in and out uh, for easy repairs uh, you can repair things at a component level too later on, but, uh, you know, you have that option. If the power supply goes out, you, there may be something on the power supply you can fix, or most likely you can just swap in a new power supply and get things up and running. So even when I owned those first few games, I didn't know anything about repairing machines and I didn't know what was inside those machines. So that's what I'm going to talk about today. A little bit about what's inside arcade machines. And I'm going to start with the heart or the brain of an arcade game. And that is the PCB. Uh, In a computer, we call it a motherboard. In arcade games, we call them PCBs. That stands for printed circuit board. And this is the big giant looking, you know, computer circuit board that contains the ROMs that holds the game. So without, uh, I mean, this is what makes... Pac-Man, Pac-Man, this is what makes uh, a game, you know, play that particular game. It contains all the code uh, for the game. Now, of course, a PCB by itself uh, doesn't do anything. It obviously it needs power and it has something very important that connects to it, which is the wiring harness. If you, I, I'm sure I've probably talked about this on previous episodes, but really quick. Earlier games were very proprietary, dedicated machines. You could not swap, for example, a miss Pac-Man. You can't even swap a, a miss Pac-Man and a Pac-Man board from one machine to another. You can't switch. Uh, even a lot of boards that were from the same manufacturer, you could not switch. They were unique Uh, wiring setups for each machine. Some of them have unique power supplies even, uh, and definitely you couldn't swap them in between different manufacturers. But uh, there was a standard created in the mid eighties called JAMA. And what JAMA did was every PCB that is JAMA compatible has a JAMA connector on the end that you hook a harness to a JAMA wiring harness. And they're all standard. So, you know, The same pin is power on all JAMA boards. The same, you know, joystick controls for left, right, up, down for player one and player two are the same for every JAMA machine. So when you get into JAMA uh, machines, you can normally just swap one PCB for another and uh, they're interchangeable, but early machines are not like that. So the early PCBs, you may find, uh, you know, a dedicated harness that you can't swap another uh, PCB into. So I've mentioned uh, this harness, a harness on one end, the end that connects to your PCB will be a long plastic connector. Uh, If you're familiar with PCs, it kind of looks like a really large um, IDE, the old IDE uh, connector that you would hook to a hard drive, uh, something like that. And there's a whole bunch of wires on the other side, and they go to things all over the machine. Uh, and so the, the wiring harness is what connects the PCB to all the different parts inside the machine that it needs to talk to. Uh, it connects to not just the joysticks and the buttons. It connects to the the coin doors. It connects to uh, literally all kinds of things all uh, around the machine. You have, uh, you know, your video. Your video feed comes off of uh, the harness. So uh, the wiring harness is, is very important. One thing that was confusing to me when I first started Looking at uh, control panels, i don't want to jump ahead too far, but uh, most control panels have separate wires that go to uh, every button, every joystick micro switch, but there's usually one common ground that kind of loops all the way around and it goes you know from negative to negative to negative, and it just uh, so instead of having a whole bunch of black ground wires going to the harness, there's usually one uh, black wire, so if you're troubleshooting. And you find several buttons not working or whatever. You might want to go look and make sure that your ground wire is is still attached to uh, uh, everywhere it's supposed to be attached. Uh, so after the wiring harness, I think the most maybe mysterious or misunderstood thing is the power supply. Usually uh, on older machines, you would find power supplies mounted to the bottom uh, on the inside of the cabinet on newer machines, a lot of the newer ones I had, uh, I would find them mounted to the side. If a cabinet has been converted, uh, from an older game to a newer game, it was not uncommon for me to find two power supplies. The one near the bottom, uh, that wasn't doing anything. And then the newer one on the side, which was the one that was actually uh, running the game. Most power supplies, uh, provide, uh, 12-volt, 5-volt, there's some common, uh, a lot of them have uh, negative voltage readings as well. Uh, So for JAMA, you know, there's a a set number of uh, uh, readings of voltages that you want to have. Most power supplies, uh, newer ones will have a uh, tiny knob to allow you to adjust the voltage up or down just a little bit. Uh, There are ways to uh, take, you know, your voltage reading at the board. So you could go check their different pins uh, on the chips. I'm not going to get too much into technical details. But, uh, you know, most boards are designed to run at, you know, right around 5 volts. Or not not the entire board, but, you know, certain chips. And so that's a good way to test. If you're getting the right amount of power to the board, you could go look at these chips with a voltmeter and, uh, and and test the voltage. I did that uh, quite a bit when I was troubleshooting uh, power issues on my machines Again, the same thing goes with uh, power supplies. It goes with wiring harnesses and everything else that there were custom ones that were designed for specific games. I remember my Mortal Kombat machine needed, a, I think it was one that needed negative 12 volt uh, to the soundboard, either negative five or negative 12. I don't remember, but uh, it was something unique uh, that I needed uh, for that power supply for a lot of modern machines that only need 5 and 12 volt, you can get away with using a computer power supply. my 720 cabinet actually had a power supply that came right out of a computer and was just wired up inside the cabinet. Uh, I know that uh, I think my Nintendo cabinets had unique power supplies done and that seems to uh, uh, ring a bell. Now you've got your game. And you have your wiring harness, and you've got power coming in. And the next thing that you'll see up at the top, so if you're looking in the uh, back of an arcade cabinet, you've opened the door. And down at the bottom, you have your power supply. And then somewhere mounted, maybe on the side or on a tray, you have your PCB, and you have your wires going. And then up at the top, you're going to see the back of a monitor. Now, of course, there are different kinds of monitors, uh, traditionally all monitors were CRT style monitors. They were not, uh, you know, newer LCD flat screens, many newer machines either have, uh, you know, some of the new HD, like the fighting games have flat screen monitors. Um, some machines, uh, you know, these monitors are, are slowly dying and if you can't repair them, some people have replaced them with LCD monitors. I, most people can tell the difference. I could definitely tell the difference and, um, you know, just it's personal taste, but a CRT monitor has that ability to kind of blend the pixels together. And it's almost like it creates rounder graphics or smoother color shades where an LCD is so crisp that you lose that illusion of, uh, colors and and things blending together. Uh, but monitors, there are lots of different resolutions. There are low-res and uh, medium-res games, and those monitors are, are typically uh, not compatible. Uh, if you look at the wiring harness, you'll see your your RGB feed going straight up to the monitor. Uh, most monitors have little dials for setting, you know, horizontal, vertical, uh, you know, adjusting the colors and things like that. So a lot of times you'll find monitors that don't look good. And just with a little bit of adjusting, you can make them look better. Uh, I I remember having a lot of people, a common question was what's the difference between uh, horizontal and vertical monitors. And the difference is that uh, vertical monitors are mounted sideways. (laughs) That's it. Uh, Physically they are identical. I mean, there's no such thing. If you order a monitor, you wouldn't order a horizontal versus a vertical monitor. Now you might order a, uh, you know, a mounting chassis that was set up for one machine over another, but the actual monitors are the same. It's just uh, how the, the machine is designed to uh, put out the video. Common problem with monitors is burn-in. Uh, old games didn't vary necessarily the uh, patterns. For example, if you look at a Pac-Man uh, machine, you will, you know, even when the machine is turned off, You can see the, uh, the maze has been burned into the machine. My gauntlet machine had the, uh, score area on the side, burned into the monitor. That's, um, you can't really fix burn in like that. But one thing to remember is when a game is turned on, it's pretty tough to see burn in unless it's really, really severe. Um, but, uh, so like my gauntlet machine, when it was turned on, the monitor looked great. It was only when it was off that you notice the burn-in. So if you're ever trying to sell a machine that has burn-in, be sure it's turned on. (laughs) Maybe they won't know. Uh, The biggest uh, thing that goes wrong with monitors is capacitors. And if you've ever heard people say, oh, this machine, you know, all it needs is a cap kit. uh, Well, they could be right. And cap kits are a... uh, it's a thing that i never mastered. I know people that do it and don't blink an eye. I know people that have spent a lot of time trying to learn it, but, but basically monitors, uh, on the, uh, attached circuit boards have capacitors and, and they were not, most of them were not designed to last for, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 years. In addition, because of where the monitor sits, all the heat inside that cabinet is rising And, you know, basically hovering around where the back of that monitor is. And so these capacitors over time get weak and, uh, they don't, you know, either they, they go bad or, or they just, you know, they need to be replaced. And so, uh, they sell what are called cap kits. If you know about capacitors and have, uh, links to, um, electronic supply, you can just get the, the, uh, schematics for monitor and order, The specific replacement capacitors, Um, if not, you could go online. There are arcade uh, supply places online, and and if you know the model number for your monitor, you could just order what's called a cap kit, and they will send you a little baggie with all the capacitors that are required to replace uh, on that specific model. And so really at that point, it's a matter of unsoldering or desoldering uh, the capacitors that are on there and replacing them with newer uh, capacitors. And that will, you know, bring most monitors back to life. It will bring them, uh, you know, make them look new, make them look bright and clear and everything else. Lots and lots of, of video problems can be traced back to, uh, bad capacitors. When I was, uh, looking at trying to cap some of my monitors, I could order a cap kit for $10 or I had a, a local, vendor who said he would cap them for a hundred dollars. Um, and then there are places that will do it. If you will mail the boards off and that's even more money. So, uh, I, I always felt like it's something that either you should know how to do, or you need to become friends with somebody who knows how to do it. Because sooner or later, all arcade monitors are eventually going to need and uh, the caps replaced. If you've ever looked at a machine that was for sale and, and it was really dim, uh, or, you know, the, the machine was a little, like, the monitor was wavy or, or anything like that. You're, you're probably looking at, uh, capacitors, bad capacitors. Um, <clears throat> also if you have your video, you have your power, you have your PCB, all these things are wired up. It's going to be tough to play your game, uh, without joysticks or buttons. And all those things are mounted to what we call a control panel. Most control panels, uh, are metal. If you open up the front, like the coin door, and you reach inside and reach up, there are probably a couple of clasps. You can unhook those, and and the uh, control panel will flip forward, and that'll give you access to the underside. That's how you would change out uh, buttons or joysticks. Uh, Joysticks and buttons are really not all that different, because what they're all doing is making contact with little switches. Now, those could be... Leaf switches, if it's an older game, or it could be micro switches, which are, um, I don't know if they're more reliable. I don't really know. Um, There's definitely a different feel. There are certain games that came with leaf switches. If you've ever played track and field, it is, uh, uh, you know, those buttons are leaf switches. And they have a, you know, when you press them, they, they mash down versus a micro switch, which has a definite click Uh, as it hits the little micro switch. So uh, some of its personal preference, um, you know, I think most, uh, games that over time, a lot of people upgraded them to micro switches, my karate champ that I owned, I believe one side was leaf switches and the other side was micro switches, which drove me crazy. Um, but, uh, the wiring of joysticks and buttons is not difficult. Changing out buttons is not difficult. Uh, most buttons, uh, you know, just have a screw on attachment at the bottom that you could twist off and remove a button, replace it with a new one. If the button was hooked up, I would say properly with a little spade attachment, then you could just unplug it and plug a new button in. If someone soldered all those together, then you may have to unsolder that or cut the wire. Uh, and that's a good time to put the proper end on there and, and replace those. But control panels, when you look at them, are not, uh, they're not that complicated, you know. Uh, they, they may look a little intimidating at first because there's a lot of wires, but once you figure out that there's uh, you know one wire for every button on the control panel and, and micro switch on the control panel that runs to the wiring harness and then one common ground that runs everywhere, it's just not um, uh, not that complicated. I bought a Neo Geo cabinet at an arcade auction. And I think I paid 50 bucks for it and, uh, whenever they tried it out, none of the controls worked. And so I went ahead and bought it. And when I got home, there was a common ground that went to the control panel that had fallen off. And when I plugged it, uh, back in, then all the controls worked. So that was one of the easier (laughs) repairs that I made on my arcade machines. Looking at the front of the machine, you'll see the coin door. Uh, coin doors take a lot of abuse over the years. Uh, I think, um, people like to kick them. Uh, you'll find them, a lot of them that are in disrepair. The light bulbs have burned out. The, uh, coin return buttons are jammed or broken. Uh, you know, I, I don't know that I ever fixed any of my coin doors just because, uh, uh, I don't know, just <laughs> never bothered me. Um, for home arcade owners, you'll find most people leave them unlocked so that you can pull it open, and if there, there's the little tab in there where when you drop a quarter in the slot, it hits a little, usually it's a metal tab. Some of the newer ones are plastic, uh, but you can open it up and, and flick that little thing and put free credits on a machine, If, uh, especially on a machine that's not able to be set to free play. Some machines uh, don't have free play settings in the uh, BIOS or jumpers or whatever, so Uh, For machines like that, it's easier to just leave the coin door, you know, slightly open. Uh, I will warn you that coin doors that are not locked are right at the right height for little kids to come in and open up. Uh, And so there's two concerns there. One is that they could damage your game. They can open a coin door and then pull a wire or do something. But uh, the more humane thing to worry about is that they could hurt themselves. They could cut themselves or or possibly... uh, uh, it's pretty tough to get electrocuted or shocked in an arcade game. Uh, I remember every time people talked about, uh, working on monitors, they will give you a spiel that you could, you know, kill yourself. And, uh, I don't know anybody that ever got killed working on a monitor. I know people that have been shocked. And I'm, from what I've been told, it's not a, a fun experience, but, uh, to actually, you know, really hurt yourself would be pretty tough but to scratch yourself, scrape yourself, there's all kinds of sharp edges inside uh, arcade machines and especially in a coin door so that's that's what I would be more concerned for uh, uh, a little kid the last thing that you'll find inside arcade machines inside is junk <laughs> every arcade machine i ever bought had something down in the bottom and i would say the two Hmm, let me think about this. Three. The three most common things I found down there were, um, first of all, quarters, coins, tokens, washers. Anything that people have put in the machine that for some reason fell out of the coin box. Uh, Maybe they jammed them in around the coin door. Maybe they put it in the coin return slot and it fell through. Whatever. Uh, But there are always, always, I found coins and and tokens. Some of them were tokens for old arcades. You know, I mentioned my uh, karate Champ machine had Malibu Grand Prix tokens and we determined that it was the very machine that I had played when I was a teenager, 20 years earlier. Uh, So occasionally you'll find cool tokens like that. More often than not, you'll find uh, uh, washers and, and dirty quarters down in there. The second thing that you'll probably find or may find is paperwork associated with the game. Now this, uh, uh, you know, it's always good to have the manuals. Most manuals are available online now in PDF, and you can find those for free in various places. Uh, but it's always nice to own the book. It's nice to own the, you know, uh, not the jumpers, the dip switch settings. Um, you know, some sometimes they'll have the history of the game. You can see when a game was purchased or who originally bought it. So that stuff's always neat. Um, as a, uh, a guy that's interested in the history of, games and machines and stuff like that. I always like that. And the third most common thing I found, uh, I would say probably in half of my machines was mouse poop. Um, uh, mice love, especially, you know, games that are stored in a cold warehouse or something. Mice get in and they poop, poop, poop all in your machines. Uh, so I was trying to think of like, don't put food in there. Cause there'd be mouse poop, but who would put food in that? game? <laughs> That'd be just weird. Uh, but yeah, you never know what you would find in there. Uh, I have heard stories of all kinds of things being found. You know, when I got my, uh, defender cabinet, it had been, uh, dead for a long time and it was being stored at a daycare and they had literally used, uh, the back door was, uh, off the machine and they had been using it more or less as a outdoor, uh, toy chest for kids toys. So there were baby head dolls and a little bottle thing and all kinds of really weird things down in my uh, defender cabinet that I had. So you never know what, what you'll find tucked away down in there. That was always one of the most interesting things I always thought was going through cabinets and, and seeing what's in there. That's pretty much everything that's inside an arcade cabinet. I, I can talk briefly about the outside. Uh, first of all, you ha- you have your cabinet. Uh, the, I want to say all, but not all, but the vast majority of cabinets are wood. Uh, some of the earlier ones are plywood later, almost all the later ones are MDF, you know, the little like compressed, uh, glued together type wood. Um, the thicker, the wood, the heavier, the cabinet that just, uh, stands to reason. There were a few plastic cabinets out there. Sega had one, uh, I think, uh, was it time traveler? Uh, may have been, I you know, that's Sega also, I think. Um, so there's a few plastic ones, but by and large, they're all wood. Um, some of them are covered in Formica on the outside. Some machines are just painted. Uh, it really just depends on, uh, you know, who had it, what it got converted into and, uh, you know, the story of its life. Uh, you never know, you know, of course, later machines. Uh, cabinets were more generic and they were designed to not look like any specific game. That was always one of my favorite things going into an arcade. Uh, especially, you know, around the late nineties or early two thousands and look at machines and try to figure out what they used to be. I love doing that. You know, there's so many classic games that have unique shapes, uh, and, and just going in and see what, you know, looking at a mortal Kombat, and, oh, actually the mortal Kombat I owned, uh, had been a, a black widow. Machine, yeah, the side art was still on, uh, uh, so I had a, a Mortal Kombat that was <laughs> used to be a Black Widow machine. Uh, but so you have your basic cabinet. Uh, there's the marquee. That's the part that's uh, up at the top. The original ones. You could find some that are glass. They may have the artwork silk screened onto the glass. You may find them. Uh, plexiglass uh, attached to there. You may find two sheets of plexiglass with just a very thin film sandwiched in between Uh, two pieces of plexiglass. Uh, Marquees are from dead machines. Most people or a lot of people hang on to those. You could just display them by themselves. If you can't afford to collect arcade cabinets, you can always afford to pick up a few marquees. I've sold lots and lots of them. I took a stack of, Oh, probably a hundred marquees to OVGE one year. And just, I think I sold it for like 10 or 20 bucks just to get rid of them. And, uh, you know, people love them. People love to go home and hang up, uh, uh, arcade marquees in their house. You have the bezel. That's the artwork on the front that goes around the monitor. Uh, some games just have generic bezels. Some have artwork. Uh, and then there are some games that have instructions uh, like karate champ is one that has the actual moves. Uh, so that's important to have. So, uh, whenever you're, it's always a pain to find replacement bezels because, uh, a lot of times people fold them to store them or they get folded up when they ship them. So I found a lot of my machines had, uh, uh, either bezels missing or, or had been replaced with generic ones I, on my uh, main cabinet that I have. Uh, well, it's not a main cabinet. It is a 60-in-1, uh, like a, a multi-machine, and it has 60 games built in. And uh, it was a, a gutted cabinet, so I put a PC monitor in there. And, of course, you have this huge gap, you know, around the sides of the monitor. And I went to, uh, I think it was Big Lots. It might have been Dollar General. And they had a poster board that was, like, color faded, like it would go from, uh, pink to yellow, like one end of the poster board was pink and it would fade into yellow. And then they had one that was blue then faded into green. And, uh, that really, it matched the, the colors that were on my cabinet. So I bought that, uh, blue and green sheet of poster board and cut out, you know, the, the size of the monitor and stuck it on there. And then put the plexiglass, and that looks perfect, man. I, I mean, it looks really good. So if you don't have a, uh, the bezel that came with your machine. There are different uh, tricks that you could do You could make a a pretty good looking bezel out of black poster board. And I've done that before. Uh, You have the uh, control panel overlay. That's the actual graphics that go on the control panel itself. Um, You know, you may find if a machine has been converted, somebody may have put, you know, one level of graphics over the next level. Sometimes you can get those old ones off with a heat gun. Um, but, uh, you know, during the eighties, lots of arcades allowed smoking, especially places like bowling alleys and, and stuff like that, places that weren't necessarily kid friendly. And so a lot of control panels may have cigarette burns on them. Some have plexiglass on top. The plexiglass may be broken. So, uh, you know, by fixing the control panel of your game. That's something that can really make it look different with a uh, very little effort. You know, you can make it look a lot nicer by cleaning that up. Um, my friend, uh, Adelph, uh, who helped me with fixing my mist, he has a, I actually sold him my old mist Pac-Man machine. And uh, when I went over to his house, the control panel looked amazing. I asked him if he replaced it and he said, no, that he had cleaned it up with magic eraser. So that's another a uh, little trick that you might want to uh, use is is like I said, just just little tricks to clean the thing up will really make the colors pop and make it look uh, new. Uh, and finally, you have the graphics that went on the side of the cabinet. You could find these uh, sometimes. You can find new old stock. That's what I did for my 720 machine. I found uh, the the stickers, you know, on the the decals that went on the side of the machine. My machine didn't have any. Um, You could take old ones off again with a heat gun. I bought a heat gun for, I don't know, 10 bucks, 15 bucks, something like that. And I was able to take uh, some decals off of uh, one of the stickers I had. On my Mortal Kombat, it was uh, Lunar Lander originally and then Black Widow on top of that. But someone had peeled half of the Black Widow decal off and then a little bit of the Lunar Lander decal off. So neither one was worth saving. So I did get a heat gun and tried to take it off that way, but I also found a belt sander worked pretty good too. (laughs) So if you're not concerned about saving the, um, the finish of the machine if you're gonna repaint it or something. Try belt sander. That'll get through a uh uh an arcade sticker pretty quick. There are places that do reproduction stickers. Uh if you are I I mean I had a a gauntlet to machine that was just blank on the side and I ordered some reproduction stickers and they weren't that expensive, you know, maybe a hundred bucks, something like that. And man did it make that cabinet look good. It looked really good when I was all done with that. So that's uh uh something you could look for too. But that's pretty much it. That's everything that's inside a cabinet and outside a cabinet. Don't be intimidated by arcade cabinets. There's just not that much to them. Uh, A lot of my machines, uh, I was able to repair things by simply replacing parts. On my Karate Champ, uh, the board was all messed up. The graphics were messed up. The sound was messed up. I did some testing. I tried replacing some chips. And eventually what I did was... I went on eBay and found a working karate champ board and I paid about $20 for it. And then I put my old board on eBay and I said, you know, I took pictures. I wasn't dishonest at all. I said, you know, the graphics were scrambled. Here's a picture of what it looks like. Might be an easy fix. Might not. I don't know. And uh, I think I sold it for somewhere between $15 and $20. So, you know, I had to pay shipping on that one. And the person that bought mine paid shipping, but, You know, for shipping and five bucks, basically, I got a working board. Uh, I bought, you know, switched in and out power supplies. That wasn't uh, any big deal. Monitors were the repair that always hung me up. But, uh, uh, you know, if you are better at electronic circuitry repair or, you know, replacing caps and soldering than I was, then you may have a good, good shot at doing that but there's just not that much to it. So if you're, you're looking at, I will, I'm going to give one caveat and, uh, it, it's, I'm sure I've mentioned this on previous shows. I'm going to mention it here. Uh, anytime you go to buy a machine that doesn't work, people will tell you, uh, it's probably just a fuse. I can almost guarantee you. It's probably not just a fuse. If it were a fuse, they would have put a fuse in and fixed it. So they're either telling you, A, they don't know what the problem is, or B, uh, they don't want to bother with figuring out what the problem is. So, But anytime someone tells you, oh, it's probably just a fuse, I guarantee you it's probably not uh, just a fuse. Now, that being said, I bought a Bubble Bobble machine. No, not Bubble Bobble. um, Buster Brothers. uh, At an arcade auction, I paid $50 for it, not working. And when I got home... I discovered that the power cord had been yanked out of the power supply. Uh, Probably it had been under another machine when someone tried to move this one or something, uh, and it had yanked it out. And so literally reattached the power cord, and that machine fired up, and it worked great. So, uh, you know, you do get lucky (laughs) every now and then. I got lucky. Um, But uh, uh, that would be the big thing I would say is don't be intimidated by it. There are a lot of people out there. Uh, that can tell you where to start looking and, uh, and that's, uh, that's pretty much it top to bottom. So, uh, I know I talked, I had a a big loading time this episode and a short uh, episode time. So, uh, I appreciate you guys as always for hanging in here, uh, with me, but, uh, that's pretty much everything I have to say about arcade stuff. So, uh, until next time, uh, this is flack out. That wraps up another episode of You Don't Know Flack. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you'd like to send me feedback about this episode or any other episode of You Don't Know Flack, you can email me at Rob O'Hara at RobOHara.com. Contact me on Twitter at Commodork. Follow the show on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash You Don't Know Flack. That's all one word. Or leave me voicemail on the You Don't Know Flack podcast hotline at area code 405-486-YDKF. You Don't Know Flack is available from iTunes, Stitcher Radio, the You Don't Know Flack RSS feed, and through ThrowbackNetwork.net, your home for quality retro podcasts. If you'd like to hear more podcasts from me, check out my Commodore 64-themed podcast, Sprite Castle, at SpriteCastle.com, and Throwback Reviews at ThrowbackReviews.com. Both of these shows are also available at ThrowbackNetwork.net. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time on another episode of You Don't Know Flack.